The setting is the late 1800s, and Sam Rhodes is the sheriff of a small West Texas cow town. One day he arrests a man who's accused of robbing the community bank. He puts the man in jail, he sends off a telegram to the circuit court judge, and then he prepares to hold the suspect in jail for a few weeks until the judge can arrive and actually hold a trial. Meanwhile, the local citizens are angry. They're enraged because many of them lost their life savings in the robbery, and and the suspect's in jail, but where's the money? If it's not recovered, they'll be ruined. They're angry and they want vengeance. A group of men in that town decide that the suspect must be guilty, otherwise the sheriff wouldn't have arrested him. So why wait for a trial? Instead, let's just storm the jail. Let's bust this guy out and hang him from the nearest tree. And so that night... Under cover of darkness, a belligerent, angry, and disruptive mob forms in front of the jail. They're armed. And they yell, and they march around, and they get themselves more and more worked up. And they holler, bring him out, sheriff. Bring him out, or we'll come in and get him. Sheriff Rhodes leaves his deputy inside, and then he steps out in front of the jail. It's a moonlit night, and so he can see the faces in the crowd. And he quietly just looks at all of these men. They're fellow citizens. They're his friends. They're his neighbors. And he knows them all. One by one, he makes eye contact with them. And as he just stands there staring, he begins to grow more and more quiet. And then it's still. And in a loud, clear voice, the sheriff starts calling them out by name. Dan Stark, I see you. Jethro Culver, I see you. Name after name rings out over the street. There's a crowd of people standing in front of the nearby saloon. People are listening from the windows of their homes down the street. And they all can hear what's going on. And all of a sudden, the men in the crowd realize they're no longer part of a faceless mob. They're individuals trying to take the law into their own hands. Their names are known. They might be held accountable. So the sheriff finishes and there is another lengthy silence. And then he says, go home. Do the right thing and let the law take its course. And the crowd breaks up and drifts away. Not all mob stories end like that, of course. But such stories remind us that cowardly and disruptive people often hide behind a crowd. And they act brave, but not because they actually have courage. They act forceful, but not because they're confident in the morality of their actions. They find bravery not in themselves, but in their force of numbers. And when people act like this, I call it forceful cowardice. Something similar 
to what I just described takes place on the last night of Jesus' life. When a disruptive mob comes out to arrest him, also under the cover of darkness. They too engage in forceful cowardice. But Jesus' story is a very different ending. We get to see what happens because it's recorded for us by an eyewitness. Let's take a look at the mob and Jesus. The book of Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 47. Matthew, one of the disciples, writes and says, While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, he'd been talking to the disciples. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, that's Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now, if we look at all four biographies of Jesus that are, that are uh, were, 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 excuse me, <laughs> all four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get a more complete picture of who makes up this crowd. And it's, it's a very odd group. It consists of men who usually aren't allies. There are some Roman soldiers from a nearby garrison, some armed guards from the Jewish temple, a few teachers of the Jewish law, even a servant of the high priest. There's a lot of these people. Scholars estimate the crowd is ranging from two dozen people to perhaps more than a hundred. And the size and the composition of the group tell us that it's not a proper force to make a legitimate arrest. It's more of a mob. It is an ungodly alliance. An ungodly alliance of men who've been mobilized to arrest Jesus and to do so under cover of darkness so they can shield their actions from public scrutiny. You don't hide when you're engaged in legitimate behavior. So the power of this group does not come from the law, but from the size of the mob. It is an act of forceful cowardice. And who is it that's ordered them to act? It's the chief priests and the elders. These religious leaders have misused their authority to arrest Jesus. Jesus, who is a harmless religious teacher. After all, what's he done to deserve arrest? Well, he's taught the Bible. (laughs) He's performed a ton of miracles. He's helped thousands of people get connected to God. The religious leaders ought to be applauding, but instead they feel threatened. Why is that? It's because Jesus is upsetting the established order. Jesus is popular with the people. His teaching, though, is undercutting the institutional power of the chief priests. And Jesus puts God's truth ahead of cherished traditions. 
this group of leaders cares more about what they want than they care about what God wants. All that matters to them is this. The teaching and ministry of Jesus is disruptive to us and what we value, so he must go. And when we consider their motivations, it seems to me that we ought to pause and reflect. Because the truth is that Jesus never stops being disruptive. When I became a follower of Christ at age 17, it was disruptive. It changed the trajectory of my life. Instead of pursuing my own goals, I started learning how to, how to follow Jesus and give priority to His agenda. And His presence in my life is incredibly comforting. And He never allows me to become complacent. He doesn't want me to just settle for the same old thing. He's always nudging me to grow and to change, and he regularly points out areas of life where he wants to reshape my character. He shows me when I fall short of God's best. He helps me choose the better path. As I think about all of that, it is tremendously encouraging to realize that Jesus cares for me so much and he wants to be involved in my life in this way. But it is disruptive. It's disruptive in the best possible ways and for the best possible reasons and this disruption is part of the life of a disciple. As followers of Jesus, You and I must learn to live with God's loving, ongoing disruption. What's sad is these religious leaders who who mobilize this first century mob, they're not able to do that. They can't see the bigger picture. They only can see things from their limited personal perspective. So rather than embrace Jesus as God's Messiah. They reject Him. They want Jesus out of their way. And Judas, the disciple who became an enemy of Jesus, he now makes this possible. As we saw last week, Judas sells out Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. And now he shows up here in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's brought the mob. And as he faces Jesus, oh, he is bold. But would he be so bold if he was standing there alone? No. He wasn't so bold earlier that night when he faced Jesus across the Passover table. Judas only is bold because of the mob behind him. And I want us to to picture this scene. As Judas and the mob approach Jesus and the disciples there in the garden, it's late at night. It's dark. There aren't any street lights. And this mob has brought some lanterns with them, but but visibility is modest at best, and it's not going to be easy to pick out Jesus. Plus, many in this crowd actually have no idea what Jesus looks like. 
This may be hard for us to comprehend because we live in this age of social media. But in the first century, you could hear all about someone and never meet them, see them, or encounter a picture of them. Many in this crowd have no idea what Christ looks like. So the mob won't know who to arrest unless Judas identifies Jesus. And he does so in a despicable, despicable way. In that culture, it is common for a rabbi and a disciple to exchange a kiss of greeting. However, the rabbi is supposed to initiate the kiss, not the disciple. For Judas to do it is an insult. And then, the wording in the original Greek text tells us something that's not apparent in our English translation Judas adds to the insult by kissing Jesus on the cheek repeatedly. That's only supposed to be done to show affection. We know that Judas has no affection for Jesus. So it's really an act of mockery. By this behavior... I think Judas is gloating. I think he's saying to Jesus, oh, I got you. And how does Jesus respond? It's almost unbelievable. He calls Judas friend. Friend. We know that later on, Judas... Judas experiences profound remorse over his actions. His remorse is so deep that he commits suicide. And I wonder if this perhaps is the moment when he first begins to experience some doubts about his chosen path. This moment when he betrays Jesus and he insults Jesus and he mocks Jesus. Jesus calls him friend. Judas doesn't respond as a friend, though, does he? So Jesus is arrested. He's arrested even though he's broken no laws and committed no crimes. The travesty of justice. And at this moment, it looks as if the ungodly alliance has won. It looks as if they have disrupted God's plan. Nope, not according to Jesus. Look what happens next. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Listen to this. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading rebellion? You've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place 
that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. So they grab Jesus to arrest him. One of the disciples grabs a sword, whoosh, lops off the ear of the chief servant's high priest. Excuse me, the chief high priest's servant. Now, now, Matthew doesn't tell us who that is, but the book of John identifies this assailant as Peter. Now, I think even without that information, we probably could have guessed. <laughs> because grabbing a sword and leaping into action, all that just seems to fit with Peter's impetuous character. Here's what we need to understand, though. By, by doing this, Peter makes a classic mistake. He uses good motives to do the wrong thing. His motives are sincere. He just wants to defend Jesus, but his actions don't help. Jesus does not need to be defended, and certainly not by the sword. Now, it's important that we always interpret Scripture within its context, and this is particularly true of Jesus' statement here when he says, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. That statement is a common proverb of that day, not a Bible proverb, a cultural proverb, and it's not a universally true statement. I mean, it's logical. Not everyone who wields a sword is going to be killed by a sword. And I don't think we can take this one comment by Jesus and make it a blanket prohibition against using a weapon. Now, there is a strong biblical case to be made for giving priority to a nonviolent response. But we can't do, as I've heard many people do, and use this verse as a proof text for nonviolence. And here's why. Even though the mob is armed, they don't initiate the violence. Peter does. And I think Jesus is saying... That if you initiate violence, you have to live with the consequences. So think before you act. And in this particular case, Peter's actions could be devastating. The mob might be incited to repay violence with violence. And at the very least, Peter's actions could give them a more legitimate reason for arresting Jesus. Jesus can't let that stand. And so as we read in the book of Luke, Jesus actually heals the ear that's been cut off. He restores that servant to wholeness. And Jesus' actions tell us that Peter's bold act accomplished nothing and needed to be undone. It needed to be undone because, as Jesus himself points out, if he wants to be rescued, he can make it happen. He can call 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angelic beings. That would be quite an army. Jesus doesn't do that, which means God has a different plan. In other words, trying to rescue Jesus in this moment is contrary to what God wants. That's why Jesus points to the scriptures. Ancient prophecies state that Jesus is going to be led away like a sheep to be slaughtered. 
And Jesus emphasized that exact point at the Passover meal earlier that evening when he said, I'm going to become the sacrificial lamb for all humanity. Scriptural prophecies, the teaching of Jesus, are all beginning to be fulfilled. It's all coming true precisely as foretold right here in this moment, and Peter missed it. And why is it that he got it so wrong? I believe it's because he didn't take time to pray. Just before the mob arrived, Jesus spent a significant amount of time in prayer, asking God for guidance and strength for what was to come. He urged Peter and the other disciples to pray. He said, you need to pray so you will not give in to temptation. And what is temptation but the urge to do the wrong thing? The urge to do something other than what is part of God's best plan. And instead of praying, Peter fell asleep. He wasn't prepared. So when it comes time to act, what motivates him? His own instincts, his own will, his own passions, rather than God's. It is so important for us to learn from Peter's well-intentioned but misguided efforts. It can be so easy for us to think that we are serving Jesus and following Jesus and yet be horribly out of step with God. The Jewish religious leaders, the ones behind the mob, they didn't realize they were out of step with God. Jesus shows us the way. He's perfectly in step with God. Because earlier there in the garden, during his time of prayer, he said, Heavenly Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he committed himself to that. And now here, in the face of this unruly mob, God's will is being done. It's being done in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And so with no weapon in his hand, facing an armed mob, it's Jesus, not Peter, who demonstrates fearlessness, who demonstrates confidence, who demonstrates faith and trust in God. do this too. When we know God's truth and trust God's plan, then anyone can stand against the mob as Jesus does. Read the account of Stephen, the first Christian martyr recorded in the book of Acts chapters 7 and 8. He faces an angry mob and he does so with fearless confidence even as he faces death. In this moment, Jesus knows that his death is coming. But he's confident because he trusts God and he trusts God's plan. And so he's willing to go along, but he's not willing to go quietly. And even at the risk of inciting the mob, did you notice that he points out their cowardice at arresting him by night? (laughs) 
They could have just walked up to him in the temple any day that he was teaching and taken, taken him away, but they didn't do that because they feared the people. They didn't do that because they did not have the courage that comes from being morally and spiritually right. They didn't do that. Because tragically, the religious leaders are not aligned with the will of God. Sadly, Jesus' disciples aren't either. At this moment, they can't see the bigger picture. And so as Jesus is arrested, they abandon him. Every single one of them. Look how this story closes. Then all, not some, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Heartbreaking. The disciples don't want to share Jesus' fate, so, so they scatter and, and they look for somewhere to hide. And as I read those words, I'm reminded that, that this is written by Matthew, who was there, one of those men, and he doesn't exempt himself. When he says they all flee, he means it. <laughs> and that includes him. I find myself wondering... If, if I was writing this account, could I be that honest about my own failure to stand by Jesus? Now, from a human perspective, we can understand why they run away. Jesus has confronted the authorities before, and he's always been able to turn them away. They always walk away without taking action. Jesus always seems to be the master of every situation until now. The arrest of Jesus disrupts everything. It disrupts the disciples' hopes and dreams and plans. It's confusing. It's fearful. How can this horrible disruption be part of God's plan? Yet it is. God is in control. Not Peter, not the disciples, not the mob. God is in control. And he is managing all of this disruption. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see how God orchestrates events to bring about his timeless purpose. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that men and women can be set free from the bondage of sin. It only happens because of incredible, incredible disruption. I want to bring this down to a more practical level for us. Because I find in my own life, and maybe you feel this too, I wonder if we really do believe that God is in control when we're in the midst of disruption. Are we willing to see God's handiwork when our own lives are disrupted? I was pondering this during the week and I was reminded of my friends Hank and Beth. They were software engineers and they both were working for the same giant corporation. And life was going well and their career was going well and then there was a downturn and they both were laid off. 
They were in their mid-50s. And they weren't ready to stop working. But at least the company made, made things palatable and softened the blow by offering them a decent retirement package. But that layoff had not been part of their plans. They had their plans set. They were going to work till 65. Then they were going to retire. And then they were going to travel. And suddenly, those plans came crashing down. That layoff was disruptive. But here's what impressed me. They had enough spiritual maturity to ask God if perhaps he was up to something. And they prayed and said, Father, do you have some greater purpose in this disruption? So they prayed and they pondered and they asked questions of all kinds of people. And they found that the missionaries supported by their church could use their help. And after many months of putting all this together, they wound up taking two or three trips a year. And they would build those trips around visits to missionaries. And they would help the missionaries with software and technology issues in ways that made the ministries of those missionaries more productive. Help them accomplish their purposes. So the answer was yes, God had a greater purpose in the disruption they experienced. Hank and Beth had wanted to travel and they were able to do that. But they did more than just travel. God didn't want them to take those skills that they had developed over a lifetime of a career and put them on a shelf. They were able to take those skills and invest them in the kingdom of God. And they had a richer purpose in the second half of life because they discovered that God's plans were so much richer than their own plans. And they discovered God's plans when their own plans were dramatically disrupted. There is so much of life that's beyond our control. And disruptions hit all of us in a variety of ways, both big and small. And a disruption can be a flat tire on the highway that makes us late for an appointment. It can be a broken relationship, a job loss, or more. So often our instinct is to only focus on what's happening in the moment. As we try to navigate that disruption... But I believe that in all such cases, it's great if we can learn to look beyond our own plans and say, God, are you up to something? Is there some greater purpose in the midst of this disruption? And there just might be. We can discover it if we ask and if we look. I love the big lesson of this story. On the last night of Jesus' life, it's this ungodly mob. They thought they were in control. They thought they were the ones doing the disrupting. But they weren't. God was. God was disrupting everyone's plans in order to accomplish his purposes through Jesus. I think that's a reason for us to be thankful at the greatness of our God. I think it also reminds us that we, as people of faith, have a never-ending challenge, and that is that we need to pray. We need to listen to God as we pray. We need to refuse to surrender to fear. And 
We need to strive to discover God's purposes for each of us in the midst of the ongoing disruptions of life. I'm myself wondering, all you have to do is read the newspaper or listen to the news to realize that we are in the midst of a world that is facing tremendous disruption right now. Are we going to get lost in that? Can we see the bigger picture? In this season, what might God have in store for you? What might he have in store for me? What are his plans for us in the midst of a world facing a tremendous amount of disruption? God always has a plan. Let's discover it. Let's follow wherever he leads.